strong men and women. Young people, you are dismissed at Children's Church. We have a special blessing just for them. Of course, we want them in here worshiping with us. But then we have also the opportunity for them to hear, to be Bible trained, to study the Word uh, in a way that is fitting, especially to them and to their ability to listen. We would please turn to me to 1 Kings chapter 2. Liam read the duty of kings given to us in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And in particular, it was worth noting verse 19, and it shall be with him, speaking of the kings, and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn the fear of the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. And then, of course, he gives a series of other uh, requirements regarding that king. How interesting it is, though, that the king, before he could take office, that he would have to sit down and in the presence of the Levites, copy an entire Pentateuch. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would have to sit down. They would have to hand copy then they would take that copy and they would build their reign, their government, their future, their people on top of that truth that they had recorded. Uh, they, would, they, would, they would have that with them for the rest of their lives. They would know that they have that, that that place is, that that truth is ever present with them. How, how comforting it is. To be able to go to a store and buy a Bible. Right? I'll bet you, I'll, I'll tell you what, if we had to copy our own, we'd probably appreciate it a lot more, wouldn't we? Right. Especially if we had to go through uh, such a lengthy section as just the books of Moses' law. And now this morning, what I want to do, of course, it's Father's Day, and uh, Father's Day is always kind of a funny thing, and we kind of do stuff for the ladies. Uh, we have gifts sometimes for them, and the men here, I don't know, maybe some of the men will like something a little bit, but uh, most of the men that I talk to, and I know even myself, my feelings are, I just want victory to honor fathers and to have a very special biblical respect for manhood and what manhood is supposed to be, not what is being perpetrated uh, in our culture and in our society today. And uh, I, I don't know about you, I, just, I don't want any recognition, I just, I love being a dad, it is its own reward. Um, I enjoy uh, hearing my girls say daddy, uh, sometimes when they're trying to be poetic. Um, and you know what, that's enough for me, I love that, that's enough for me. Dads, thank you for everything that you do. And I, I don't, I couldn't speak for every man here. But I do know this, that every man that I know of does more than other, than other people know. Uh, there's a lot that they just don't say. Things that they do uh, in secret. Good things, beneficial things, prosperous things for their family. And uh, it is simply enough to have the love and affection and admiration of our families. You know, in our culture, it wasn't that long ago, it's not so much anymore. In our culture, uh, we had some pretty outrageous ideas for what manhood should look like. And it's sad because right now, almost exclusively, I've talked about this, almost exclusively men are being portrayed as dopey doofuses who are incapable of loving properly, who are self-centered, self-seeking, self-interested. And the image being portrayed of dads today, in, especially in, in the culture as well, goes right along with that. And that is that they are many times inept and many times not to be trusted with the children. Unless they let them play with knives or eat uh, chocolate chips for breakfast. Or as though somehow there's an ineptitude or a lack of care. Uh, by fathers for their children. And what I wanted to do is just look this morning 
at a kind of a specific recipe or uh, shall we say a makeup of a godly man. And it comes from a father. This is what a father wished for his son. And now this isn't just any son. This is an exalted son. This is the son of one of the greatest kings to inhabit earth on his, in his day, in his time. And what an incredible individual he was as he took his people to heights and depths of wealth and power they had not previously seen. And of course, it would be easy, it would be tempting to say to that son, now, be careful of the percentage rate. Keep an eye on the treasury. Don't let your army be dis diminished. Make sure that you have skillful politicians. He could have told him to do a lot of things. But his counsel was very simple. Look there, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. Now the days of David drew now that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore. Show thyself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies. As it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest. And whithersoever thou turnest thyself, that the Lord may continue his work, which he spake concerning me, saying, If thy children take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart, with all their soul, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you and praise you for the opportunity now to consider what it means both to be a man and to be a father. Lord, we are being inundated right now with images of ineptitude, selfishness, uh, in many cases even uh, effeminate in images. Father, we know that within the bounds of your scriptures, you have a specific image for what a man should look like. He is first and foremost tender towards you, careful in your word, and diligent to always seek your will so that he might please you. Father, we thank you for this glorious day, the opportunity to be together, to worship together, to sing together, to pray together, to memorize your word, to seat it in our souls together. Father, we pray that today we would leave here richer than when we came, spiritually deeper than when we got up this morning. And Father, let us then throughout this week be intentionally bolder as we share the person, the word, and the purpose of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for our dear brethren across town. We lift up this morning the new pastor, Greg Linsmith. Fill him with power. Fill him, Father God, with a sense of your spirit that allows him to preach with boldness. Father, let us reach Rochester for the cause of Christ. We pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, I had the title there, How a Godly Man is Made. It's kind of a working title. It's not, not particularly germane to what I'm doing, although it certainly applies. It certainly works. But maybe the better title is Lessons from a Father's Last Words. <clears throat> and if you would, turn me over to First Chronicles, not far away. First Chronicles, chapter 28. You'll actually see you have two records of the same thing. But First Chronicles actually has a little more detail of different things. Uh, beginning of verse 20 of chapter 28, David said to Solomon, his son, I remember he said in our text, be a man. 
He told him, show thyself a man. Now in verse 20 of 1 Chronicles, he says, be strong and of good courage and do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, will be with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee, until thou hast finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. And behold, the courses of the priests and of the Levites, even they shall be with thee for all the service of the house of God. And there shall be with thee for all manner of workmanship, every willing, skillful man, for any manner of service. Also the princes and all the people will be holy at thy commandment. And then he prepares his people in chapter 29. He gets them ready. He gets their attention on Solomon. He gives them a, a charge to Solomon. And he even remarks earlier on in chapter 28, Thou Solomon, my son, verse 9, Thou Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father and serve him with a perfect heart, with a willing mind, for the Lord searcheth all hearts, and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. Take heed now, for the Lord hath chosen thee to build a house for the sanctuary. What's he say there? Be strong and do it. Be strong and do it. And you see, in the context there, in 1 Chronicles chapter 28 29, he's talking in particular about the fact that he would be building the temple, the place of God, the place where God would reside with his people. Obviously, what could man possibly build for the Lord that should, it should contain the Lord? There is nothing that man could build, that man could do, that man could produce that could completely encapsulate God, and I thank God for that. I'm glad He is infinite. I'm glad there is no way to measure Him. There is no distance across Him, because that tells me He does not suffer from any limitation. Now let me apologize, I do not have the, the with all the hubbub and fun and everything else, I, my, my uh, PowerPoint did not get finished. So what I'm going to do is I'll just try to take as, uh, as clearly as I can. I know sometimes I go right over uh, a point because the clicker does it all for me. You know that I've moved on. Uh, but today I'll try to give a little bit of extra attention to that and uh, to help you keep along. Make sure that you have that, those notes there. Like I was saying, many times in our culture today, what's happening is, is we're, we, we're admiring the guys with all the muscles. We're admiring the guys who can do 100 pull-ups. In, in one turn. Some guys, there are guys who can squat the front end of a pickup truck and uh, lift a car or run a certain amount of, of, of miles. We're, we're so interested in male brawn that we forget, we miss the fact that in the scriptures, David's champions, David himself and his champions, were men of God first. What made them manly was the fact that they had a tenderness they had an attentiveness to the things of the Lord, to His will, and into seeing the application of God's Word in their life. Now, I know what you're thinking. David had some really big falls. He failed miserably in certain cases. But the Bible does record for us that David was a man after God's own heart. That is the summary of his life. That is his testimony. So we know that his failure and his sin was just a chapter in his life. It was not his entire existence. Aren't you glad that God can do great things for us even when we fail miserably? That we are not so useless to God after we fail? That there is no way that God could possibly produce in you and me the testimony that he was a man or a woman after God's own heart? And boy, that gets me excited. I know how often I fail. I've never killed anybody. I've never committed adultery. But I know that I have failed and I'm encouraged because I know from the example of David that if I had that tenderness and attentiveness to the things of the Lord, the Lord can use me mightily. And he's trying to instill that now into his young son, Solomon. Solomon is a very different guy from his father. 
You might remember, now just pay attention, of course, 1 Kings continues the history of the monarchy that was started in 1 Samuel, that was started in 1 Samuel, and then now you see the same monarchy kind of marching along. And in, within the pages of that monarchy, we learn about a man named David, a very unusual individual, almost his entire life from boyhood till death is recorded in some way, is recorded in the pages of God's inerrant word. He was a shepherd boy who was promoted by uh, to be the king of God's chosen people. He was, pardon the expression, he was a man's man. While he was still a boy shepherd, David defended his flock by killing a lion and a bear. No wonder he had such boldness when he stood up in front of Goliath. And you might remember a little later on, four of Goliath's brothers tried to get revenge and failed miserably. Uh, how'd you like to have four giants put a bounty on your head? But David was bold. David wasn't ashamed. He knew that, and of course he challenged the men of Israel, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? As a teen, he vanquished a Philistine giant who had made all the men of Israel tremble in their armor. Ruddy David went to live in the royal palace. He became Saul's personal musician. Paul was having some problems, some, you could say, maybe mental and emotional needs, uh, as uh, he was kind of coming unraveled in his own selfishness, and uh, David was brought in to pray for him, or to play for him, to play music for him. And it was there that he became friends with Prince Jonathan. It was there that he came to marry Princess Michal. Uh, it was there that he continued his studies, his various musical instruments, and eventually became an enemy of Saul. He was a man of exceptional talents. Of course, as I said, he taught himself many different musical instruments. He was a military genius. While even a young man, Saul, had given to him the responsibility of commanding his army. Of commanding his army. And you have to give him this. He was an expert actor. An expert actor. He lived among the Philistines. Who did he kill again? Goliath, right? He lived among the Philistines and they left him alone because they thought he was insane. They thought he had lost his marbles. They thought he was out of his mind. As a man, he was pursued. As a young man, he was pursued by King Saul. And I thank the Lord for the fact that he showed that he was a man of great integrity. When he had the chance to kill his sworn enemy, Saul, he never harmed a hair on Saul. Never once. Even felt bad about cutting a little corner out of his robe. I'll tell you what, if a man were trying to kill me, I wouldn't feel the least bit bad about ruining his clothing in any way. But he was pursued by the Philistines. He was even pursued by his son Absalom, you might remember. And yet David was handpicked by God to rule God's special people, Israel. He was patient. He started with Judah, and then eventually he united the whole kingdom. It was David that brought the Ark of the Covenant out of obscurity and back into Israel. And despite all of his many faults, David is, in 1 Samuel 13, 14, and Acts 13, 22, David is described as a man after God's own heart. And this individual is here in our text. He's here in our passage. He, is, he knows he is dying. He knows he is leaving this world. He says, I go the way of all the earth. This is a euphemism for saying everything dies and I must too. Everything dies and I must too. We know that in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 we are told that death passed onto all men. It passed upon all men. And David is a human man. As much as we might reverence him, as much as we might admire him, he is still just a man. As exalted as he was, he is still just a man. And a man who was responsible to, to choosing God and to living by the principles of God's word. So he made plans, even though Adonijah was hoping that he would be the next in line. He actually kind of figured that it was due to him 
And of course, the, the prophet came to David and said, no, not him. Just like he skipped over all of David's older brothers, just like Samuel skipped over all of David's older brothers and chose David instead. Remember, where was David when, when Samuel came to Jesse's house? He was out in the field, wasn't he? He wasn't even there. Jesse had not. He's just so, he's just so too young. Man. There's no way Samuel's here for him. And of course, again, the Lord chose. Liam just re read it a few minutes ago. A man of my choosing, God said. It was a man of my choosing, and God had chosen Solomon, and David knew that Solomon then had to be his successor. And this charge is actually very similar to the charge that Moses gave Joshua. Remember, what did he repeat in there? Be strong and of good courage. We know that. Everything David accomplished in his lifetime provided Solomon with the opportunity to be the greatest king of all time. To be the greatest king of all time. Let's come to our text then. Let's come to our outline. Number one, remember we're looking at the dying wish of King David. The dying wish of King David. In verse 2 there, I go the way of all the earth, be thou strong therefore, and show thyself a man. Now let's categorize it like this, because he's going to talk about spiritual dimensions. Remember, this is a guy that had an incredible army. This is a guy that had military genius. This is a man with uh, musical acumen. He had incredible ability. And so, the, the, the point that he's trying to make to his son Solomon is this. With his dying wish, David challenged Solomon to excel in God-likeness. In God-likeness, because that's what godliness is. It is the ability to be ye perfect, even as your father is perfect. It is to live in such a way that we are a reflection of God. It is to live in such a way that we are blessed by God because we are imitating Him. And so what he knew is, and he gives him here, there's three different strengths that he wanted Solomon to have. In particular, there was three different strengths he wanted Solomon to have. Number one, remember there in verse two, he said, be thou strong therefore. He doesn't really say, but we do know that the rest of the text refers to spiritual matters, spiritual things, heavenly things, things pertaining to the nature and the work and the word of God. Strength number one is this. He wanted Solomon to be determined to prevail in things that matter. In things that matter. Not just in anything. Remember what is missing from our text. Military prowess. Uh, army recruitment. Politicians. Money. Influence. Power. All of those things were missing. What he wanted him to do was to be strong in the things of the Lord. We love to tell our kids life is hard. Life is hard. Because it is hard, right? Our kids would complain to us. My pillow is too hard. My food is not sweet enough. My beverage is not hot or cold enough. And what do we say? Somewhere across the globe, there's a little kid who's tired of sleeping on a rock. Who would love to have a glass of water? Who would love to have some food? And of course, we know it's a little bit lost on them because we're raising them in this world. The only real way to take care of that is up your family and move to India. Okay? Otherwise, they're going to have to understand it simply in their mind in, in relation to the proper use of their imagination. So, go easy on it. But, when you realize it, when you look at it, you'll understand here that there are, there are things that really do matter and there are things that don't matter. And that's what we're telling our kids. There are some things that do matter, that matter for eternity. There are some things that just don't matter. Deal with it, take care of it, move on. Don't fill up your time pursuing this. This is the great agony of our entertainment and our amusement right now. We are burning up massive chunks of our time and money and our lives for no other reason than to, than to appeal to this right here. 
when you step away from that controller, or you step away from that musical equipment or something else, we have nothing better for it. I said before a dozen times, Bob, I say we're killing ourselves with our amusements. We're killing ourselves with our amusements. And David wanted Solomon to prevail in things that matter. I don't know, that list that I gave you of stuff that, that was not in the text. I'll tell you what, an army would matter to me. Uh, political allies would matter to me. Some kind of economic uh, body or, or individual or group would matter to me. David is saying none of those things matter more than the relationship you have None of that will matter more. He wanted him to prevail in things that matter. Number two, strength number two. He wanted him to aspire to the ideal of a godly man. That he would aspire to the ideal of a godly man. He's calling on Solomon to be a champion. Now, I know, we're all a little bit edgy. And, and right now, the woke mom and everybody else, they're crying foul anytime uh, you, know, you would refer to things of masculinity and being a man. Oh, that immediately impugns women. No, no, it doesn't. Solomon is a man. He is a male. And he can't do anything about that. And of course, David is calling on Solomon to, to be a champion, to be the best of what God has made him. This is not any kind of diminution of women or belittling of women. D.J. Parker put it this way, the man is not in the gender, but in the character. And David is telling Solomon, be the best man that God intended you to be. David is charging Solomon to be self-controlled, to be fearless, to be a prince or a king of a human being. Now this is interesting again because David is a rugged man. He was a man who had suffered much. He had been toughened by years of hardship. He had been marginalized by his own father. He had lived in caves. He had lived among his enemies. He had felt the hatred of his friends and his countrymen. Solomon was not like his father. Solomon grew up with the proverbial silver spoon in his mouth. He lived in soft luxury. He was shielded from all manner of difficulty. His mother attended to his every need. Many people have wondered if, in fact, Solomon wasn't to some degree, and I think they presume this, because he surrounded himself with women later on. They wonder if he wasn't even a little bit effeminate as well. Problem is, the text doesn't say that. What it sounds like is a young man who's unsure of himself, and he's unsure because he's never been tested, he's never been tried, he's never had to go through difficulty. Praise God if you have gone through and survived hardship. God is tempering you. God is trying you. He is toughening you up. But he has also noticed here some of the best men in the scriptures. John the Baptist, he wore animal skins and ate bugs. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. Paul languished in prison repeatedly with bounties on his head. David, certainly, David wanted him to be the ideal of a godly man. He wanted him to be the highest ideal of a male person, a champion. Well, you say, what decides the ideal? It is the word of God. He's getting to that. It is a man, as far as God is concerned, a man should be. Now, to have that, to do that, to accomplish that, he needs to accomplish he needs to possess, sorry, he needs to possess a third strength. And that is this, that he would possess good judgment. Look at verse 3, and keep the charge of the Lord thy God. Keep the charge of the Lord thy God. To watch, to guard, to observe, to preserve, to protect, and attend to what God has required. He wanted Solomon to demonstrate good judgment concerning the will of the Lord. He wanted Solomon to honor the Lord. He wanted him to devote himself to pleasing the Lord. 
So naturally, that brings us then to the fact that David desired that Solomon would prize diligence in his devotion. That he would prize diligence in knowing in his devotion. And there are two prizes given here. Prize number one is knowing the will of God and keep the charge of the Lord thy God. Number one, to walk in his ways. To have the ability to walk in his ways for following God's direction. At one point there's a psalm even in these books of history where David says, Lord, give me big feet. Expand my feet. That's interesting because as he's walking in the path of God, he didn't simply say, Lord, keep me in the path. He recognized that he had responsibility to obey that path, to honor God's direction, to honor God's will. He simply asked God for the capacity, for the ability, for the opportunity to, of his own accord, follow the way that God would make. Follow the path that God had blazed for him. And you see that comes from course in our text here. And it comes from studying and applying God's Word. From studying and applying God's Word, especially as it relates to the four quarters found in the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, to keep his number one statutes. His statutes. This literally means things inscribed. These are established or defined laws. These are limitations that are prescribed and written down. He wanted Solomon to be skillful in those things God had already written down. He wanted him to have that. Your blanket next to statutes can read like this. He wanted Solomon, here's, here's your blank. How God wants his people to serve. How God wants his people to serve. David wanted Solomon to know how to serve God. To know how to please God. He wanted to know what was out of bounds. He wanted, or he wanted Solomon to know what was out of bounds. He wanted Solomon to know what was in bounds. He wanted Solomon to know how to get back into the path when he had strayed. Sound familiar? We're pretty much told the same thing when Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You can see the same thing here. He says, listen, I want you to have such a handle on the Word of God that you know what God has inscribed, that you know how God wants His people to serve Him. Secondly, His commandments, you see that word there. This is a command or a charge. It is any authorized command. It is some intended rule of action. In other words, this is how God wants His people to act. This is how God wants His people to act. And we have the same thing. Now, of course, you and I, we, are, we have the New Testament. But even in the New Testament, as we have moved on from the Pentateuch, not that the Pentateuch is not relevant to us, it absolutely is. You can't understand the New Testament if you don't give time and consideration of the old. The two come together. The old is the basis for the new. But even in the New Testament, God prescribes for us how to act. He tells us children, doesn't he? He tells us how we are to act towards our parents. He tells us, employee, how we are to act towards our employer. He tells us, husbands, how to act towards our wives. He tells us, wives, how to act towards our husbands. He tells pastors how to act towards their churches. And he tells churches how to act towards their pastors. God is concerned with the practice of His Word in your life. 
not armies, not politics, not economics. David wanted Solomon to know how he should act in such a way that he'd be able to please God. We'll let her see their judgments. This is how God wants his people to make decisions. This is how God wants his people to make decisions. How God wants his people to serve him, number one, letter A. How God wants his people to act, letter B. Letter C, how God wants his people to make decisions. Judgments are a process of deciding. It's a binding order that's made by a judge regarding how to handle things, and in this particular context, how to handle things God's way. Okay, so when we are harmed, injured, insulted, how are we to handle them? Well, pray for them that spitefully use you. We're to forgive them. Seventy times seven. Uh, we are to respond to them with kindness, gentleness, meekness. We're to rejoice when we are made to suffer by a fellow human being. When we're making those kinds of decisions. When we're planning our future. When we're planning our future. Young people, Pastor Dan mentioned not being unequally yoked. Not being unequally yoked. When we make the decision of a spouse, there is a carefulness to remember that in my marriage, it behooves me, it's important to me, that I not put myself in a situation where I am put under the authority of someone who is unsafe. And I do not bind myself to them and to their value system. I, as a believer, have a specific way of deciding. And I get that from the Word of God. This is why we're promised abundant wisdom if we would but ask. This is the nature of wisdom. We need more than knowledge. I know some really smart people who do really dumb things. They're intelligent. They have knowledge. But they are not wise. David wants Solomon to be wise in the things of the Lord so that he will know. Do I need to pray about being unequally out? No, I don't do I. Do I need to pray about sin? Lord, please bless me as I'm about to partake in adultery. No. Because I have that value system, that way of deciding that God is. I'm in God's word. I'm developing this. This is the, see, this is the stuff I can't give you. I can tell you. I can instruct you. I can implore you. But unless you're in the scriptures for yourself, you will not have that way of thinking. Because you have not renewed. You have not changed. You have not transformed. Your mind, Paul said. We have not developed that way of thinking. Let it be testimony. Let it be testimony. It's what God wants his people to know about him. What God wants his people to know about him. And actually, Pastor Dan uh, dealt with it, and Glenn brought it up in the discussion time as well. It matters what you know about God matters. If you understand things such as the infinitude, the blessedness, the eternality of God, those are the, the, the character traits, the attributes of God we've already gone over and what we'll do is we'll next week we'll get into some more, well, not next week, we'll get into some more attributes of God. What you know to be true about God affects your life. What you believe will dictate how you behave. You will live out your theology every day. You will live out what you believe to be true about God each and every day. If you believe that someday there is going to be a day of reckoning, will it matter? Let me ask you this. 
when you're doing 65 and a 60, and you know there's a place that leaves like to sit, do you consider the effects of going past that place at 65? It affects you, doesn't it? If you think there are consequences that could come from this, it's going to affect your life. Lots of people are saying they love the Lord, but they don't think there's any consequences from that. Testimonies challenge us, change us, charge us with regards to what God wants His people to know about Him. Prize number two is this. He says, of course, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, his testimonies. All right, these are observable, uh, objective facts. They are formal evidence. They are formal proof, legal testimony of God's trustworthiness. He says that as it is written in the law of Moses, by upholding the truth of God's word, Solomon's devotion to the will of God meant that he did not invent a truth of his own, but served God's word of truth wholeheartedly. Remember the charge to Solomon's children? Down there in verse 4, If thy children take heed to their way uh, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, telling Solomon, you have no liberty to decide what is and is not God's truth. God's truth is already given. You need to stand by it. You need to defend it. With his dying wish, David challenged Solomon to pursue an eternal kind of prosper. An eternal kind of prosper. Because he knew, look there, look at the end of verse 3, that thou mayest prosper. Prosper how? Well, in all that thou doest. But whithersoever thou turnest this. Notice how non specific he is. Because God is able to bless anything you do. God is not limited. God is not limited in any way. He says there that you may be prudent. Or circumspect. He's not giving us, as some people will misquote Philippians, uh, we can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. So I'm going to go out and do something stupid, foolish. It's God's going to strengthen me. Now I have to know in which, in what, God will strengthen me. He's not going to strengthen me in my sin. He's going to oppose me in my sin. He's not going to strengthen me in my selfishness. He's going to oppose me. He's going to correct me. And so what he's saying here, that you may prosper, remember again from, from above, in things that matter. He wanted him to prevail in things that matter. He says that you may have prudence, intellect, to have success in every action that you take. Only God can provide the satisfaction meaningful. The kind of success that was with us that causes us to lay on our bed, our deathbed, and rejoice. That doesn't fill us with regret. As a pastor, I've had the opportunity to sit with men as they were done. Men and as they were done. The ones that break my heart are the ones who spent the last moments of their lives. Rehearsing the gratitude. One man left, a good man, told me things that surprised me. I said, I had to tell him, I said, Brother, are these under the blood? Have you asked God to forgive me? Yes, I have. And she followed me to the grave. We could give our entire lives to something, to a noble cause, but friends, if God doesn't give you the success, that much more meaningful. David was warning Solomon that God would honor the promises that he had given him. And you can look at the scripture text. I'm, I'm really out of time. You can look at the scripture text above. 
God promised to David, he made promises to David in 2 Samuel 7. And he honored those promises in 1 Kings chapter 9 and verse 5. But he had to understand that he could not earn God's blessing. He had to honor the Lord. It was not something to be earned. It was not something to be demanded. Let her be there, going back to our text, that the Lord may continue his word which he spake concerning me. That if thy children take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart. Okay, that's the innermost part of a man. The place where a person holds things most dear. It's the seat of conscience, knowledge, and thinking. He says, with all their heart and with all their soul. This is where the inner man lives. It is his self. It is the seat of his appetites, his emotions. It's where the activity of his mind occurs. It's both where his will and his character emanate from. With all their heart, with all their soul, there shall not fail thee. This would be David's enduring legacy. Only God can provide the permanence of an enduring legacy. Men, there comes a point in every man's life that he starts to think about how he will be remembered. Tragically, for far too many men, that thought occurs too late. David's legacy would stand on the fact he was a man after God's own heart. Solomon heeded his words. Here's a list of Solomon's accomplishments. He solidified the royal dynasty of his father David and provided a path for Messiah to appear in his lineage. Solomon moved Israel's capital to the holy city of Jerusalem. Initially, we know he didn't finish well, but he started out well. He destroyed idolatry and established the worship of the one true God across all of Israel. He expanded Israel's borders, even subjecting Israel's neighbors and enemies into tax-paying tributaries. He is probably the reason we have 73 of the Psalms penned by David. He followed through on David's desire to build a temple for Jehovah. As much as David did for making Israel the greatest nation in the world, Solomon did still pray. But we see the illustration of David's warning in Solomon's son. Rehoboam split the game. Lost to lost half of them to his father's enemy, Jeroboam. David warned him. David's grandsons didn't eat the pulp. Dad's the special thing here. The very, very special thing is this. The things that were David's chief desire at his death, they're still available to any man today. Ladies, did I leave you out? You need to demand this for we need to inspire this in your sons and grandsons. We need to look for this and apply it. Celebrate when we see it in our youngest ones. Because ladies, we have no church. We have no church if the men are not men of God. Just like we couldn't do it without you either. We couldn't do it without the women. I've, I've talked about that on Mother's Day as well. But listen, here's, here's a couple of things that we can learn from dying David. Number one, God does not recognize human honor. He treats all men equally. David died. He still died. He didn't live outside of sin and death. A man with a heart like God did not escape death. Number two, we have no reason to dread death. When we live under God, David didn't live there. And his last words weren't a bunch of regrets. But a hope that his son would go on and do even greater. 
Thirdly, faith is not an unmanly pursuit. Yet our churches are woefully devoid of men. And in many cases, the men that do attend are complacent, standoffish, uncommitted. I'm not accusing anybody here. I'm just saying that statistically that's what's happening in our churches. In many churches, they're, they're in many regards quite feminine because the men are just not interested. Listen, a God-ordained manliness is a decisiveness towards the will of God. That's what David was teaching Solomon. While others are uncertain, fearful, or discouraged, the man of God, a godly man, a God-ordained manliness has a deep-seated sense of purpose in his pursuit of godliness. He does not look at godliness and say, it's too effeminate for me. Instead, he says, it's just what a man needs. Let our be God-ordained manliness is the independence to follow God's path while others go their own way. This is what's funny about Christianity is it really takes an independent pioneering spirit because all the culture is going to stand up to you and say, you're wrong, you're missing out. How foolish are you? You go to that church? You worship God? You read your Bible? You pray again? Why would you do that? Sadly, when we give up on godly manliness, all we're doing is following the crown. Let her see. God ordained manliness is a depth of happiness in our holiness. While others might find our faith, matters of our faith, burdensome. Pastor, I just can't get the church like I want. Pastor, I'm just content with showing up one time. Pastor, I'm content to just hold down a pew and not get too involved. Manliness of God has a depth of happiness in His holiness. In other words, it is not unseemly for a man of means and might to exercise himself in the faith. True and genuine manliness is not deviation from God, but devotion to God. Fourthly, the Lord will require far more of a man than just his physique. As much as David was a manly man, he was a man's man. He was careful his tenderness towards the Lord. This was written by Dr. Martin commentator of antiquity. He says, the development of the body, and remember what Paul told Timothy, holiness was better than uh, personal exercise. The development of the body, however, is not all that makes up a man. A prize fighter has a well-developed body, but his influence does not count for much outside of the prize ring. There is a mind to be cultivated, uh, to be cultivated and a soul the man who devotes himself entirely to physical development will be apt to forget the needs of the other two parts of his nature. If all the energy in a man's nature is running to brawn, there will be nothing left to run to bring. The men who have compelled the world's attention have not been physical giants, but men of mental and moral muscle. Napoleon, Wellington, and Grant were not great in mind. If the ideal of a perfect man consisted only in physical qualities, we should be lower in the scale than certain animals. The ox surpasses a man in muscular strength, the antelope in speed, the hound in keenness of scent, the eagle in eyesight, the rabbit in acuteness of hearing, the honeybee in delicacy of taste. The spider in fineness of nervous energy. So we cannot measure a man by his body, nor by his material possessions. We have advanced beyond the age in which the world counted at its, at its, as its greatest heroes Hercules, Ajax, Ajax Chryseus, Melidiades. Uh, the world today is ruled not by muscle but by mind and heart. The bravest are the tenderest. The loving are the daring. A young man's value to the world and to himself 
depends largely on the cultivation of his intellect. David was saying the cultivation of his intellect in godly pursuits. You're not a big man, an influential man, powerful man. David still offers you the kind of manliness that God has never understood. Ladies, let us then also be careful. Let us also then be careful to support, to encourage a godly kind of manliness. Let us choose to develop that kind of leadership in our manliness. Well, we cultivate closeness, precision in the things of the Lord. David didn't describe anything physical or political. Confirmed that all of his success and any future prosperity would come only from his walk with the Lord. Unsaved friend, that means then there's a burden of proof on you. If you have not given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, then you have no walk with the Lord. You have no relationship. You don't even have the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. You don't have the Holy Spirit to guide you into God's truth. But I'll tell you this. Your pursuit into a godly kind of madness begins when you submit yourself. When you bow yourself to Jesus Christ. When you give your heart and life to Father, I pray for that one that is yet. Help 
them to see and understand the bravest, the most heroic thing they can do is today give their heart and life to Jesus Christ. Help them to see that today there is a heavenly Father who has sacrificed much so that, Lord God, they could have the freedom that many times we associate with human happiness. But this is an eternal through salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dads, how about it? What kind of legacy are you Are they seeing a legacy of tenderness, carefulness, and affection for God's word? Or do they see something inherently more selfish? It's time to make a change. It's time to make a change. Unsaved friend today, I implore you, take that step. Grasp the Father's hand. He's already provided a way Turn me to 380. Faithful men, 